Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spastian. I'm joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I am absolutely delighted because tonight we're going to talk about actual wrestling instead of a three-hour infomercial for Red Notice and Pizza Hut. <laughs> absolutely. But um, <clears throat> before we, speaking of wrestling, before we get to our guest, uh, why don't you do a uh, Shout out to our sponsor and his wrestling school. I would be more than happy. So Dan and Benny in the Ring is brought to you by Boogie's Wrestling Camp, founded in 1992 by wrestling legend Jimmy Valiant and his beautiful beautiful wife, Angel. BWC is situated in beautiful, scenic Shawsville, Virginia. So whether you want to be a wrestler, manager, announcer, or valet, BWC is the place for you at BWC. You'll receive the best possible training from Jimmy and his amazing staff. You'll learn holes. Bumps, psychology, promos, anything to be a superstar. Uh, the cost is just $250 down and $20 per session, which is very negligible compared to other wrestling schools. Uh, Boogie's Wrestling Campus turned out 29 graduating classes. The most notable alumnus being the AEW world champion, Hangman Adam Page. So when you join BWC, you're not just joining a wrestling school. You're becoming a part of the BWC family. Interested? Visit Jimmy Valiant at jimmyvaliant.weebly.com for more information on Boogie's Wrestling Camp. BWC, the ring of dreams where the dream becomes reality. Oh, and tell them Dan and Benny sent you. Absolutely. Uh, great stuff. And of course, you know, we talk about the hallowed history of, of the Valiant Brothers and everything he's been a part of. And speaking of history, we have a uh, legendary wrestling historian, uh, he, and he's written a lot of uh, on the Minnesota AWA territories. The book we're going to talk about today is called Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. We are being joined by a, like I said, historian, author, and most importantly, uh, fan of wrestling history, George Shire. George, thank you for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure. I've looked forward to it, guys. You know, we, we got to get right into it, and... We always talk about it's it's a question. It comes up on the show every every time we talk to somebody. <clears throat> Before we recorded, you were telling us about growing up in uh, you know the Twin Cities at sixties and seventies, uh, which was huge hotbed of wrestling back in the day. The AWA obviously huge uh, for the territories, and we got to know. And and it's a different story every time. And it's it's funny how sometimes the stories overlap. Uh, when did when did it get you? When from watching TV or going to to getting your first tickets? When did you just? At what point did you see wrestling and go, "This is it. This is what I love. This is what I'm interested in." I'll answer that question, but I do want to say one thing about Jimmy Valiant since you since he's a sponsor. Of course, I had I had the honor to see Jimmy Valiant when he debuted in the AWA. In 1969, he was getting training from Vern and some of the other wrestlers. He was Jim Valen in those days. Right. And Jimmy Valiant and I, though we haven't seen each other a lot over the years, I've run into him a couple, three times. I am amazed that he always remembers me. And we've talked, last time was a few years ago at CAC. And I was really uh, 
I guess, honored when his book, if you guys haven't got Boogie Woogie's book. I've got my autographed copy right here. Well, if you go through the book, he does mention me in there. And uh, I was I was honored at that because uh, he, of all the wrestlers I've been friends with over the years, Jimmy by no means is one of the closest, but he's always been there. And he, he was he turned into a great star from the Jim Fallon, I remember. So now to answer your question. Um, boy, I'll tell you what, it's always interesting how the wrestling bug bites people. Um, I can tell you that when I go back to about 1957, 58, I was uh, six and seven years old back in those days. So that tells you that I'm an old, old guy. But uh, in 1957, my mother was a wrestling fan. My dad was kind of lukewarm on it. He didn't really care. But it usually was my dad that I ended up going to a card with. And um, I, I remember my very, very first card. You know, when you're a kid, memories are kind of clouded. You don't always remember things exactly. But it was on uh, August 6th of 1957 in Minneapolis. And I was excited to see Vern Gagne as a kid because, you know, he's he was on TV in Minneapolis. This is pre-AWA. But Vern Gagne was huge in Minneapolis, the Twin Cities. And uh, it was the main event of that match, of that card, that really pulled me in, at least at six years old. It was a heel versus heel tag team match. And that was very rare in those days. But it, what was really unique about it is it was the Russians, Ivan and Carol Kelmakov, against as they called them in the Minneapolis program, and there was no politically correctness in those days, the Dirty Japs, Japanese team of Mitsu Arakawa and Kinji Shibuya. Wow. And when the, the two teams came to the ring, I remember I had my hands over my ears because it was so loud at the boos that both teams got. And I didn't understand that as a six-year-old kid and I had mentioned to my dad I said how come they're how come they're how come they're booing both teams and my dad says I hope they just kill each other which I couldn't understand my dad saying that but I learned later on that wrestling was really good in the 50s and into the 60s even to the 70s it was very good at playing on uh, racial conflicts you know in the 50s, we were only a decade away from, a, you know, past the World War II coming to an end, where America was at war with the Japanese and the Germans. And even though the Russians um, were really an ally to the United States at that point in time, they were still not liked in the wrestling business. So there were lots of Russians and Germans and Japanese wrestlers uh, coming, you know, in all the territories. But in this particular match, it was funny because when one of the Japanese wrestlers would punch one of the, or, or do something to one of the Russians, the fans would cheer. And one of the Russians would do it to the Japanese, they would cheer. So they basically wanted them just to destroy each other. And I didn't understand that as a little kid. But it really wasn't until uh, a couple of years later, 1959, my uh, long story short, my parents were finally 
getting divorced uh, after many separations and a very turbulent relationship. And as a eight-year-old kid in September of 59, my parents were in the kitchen having one of their own Donnybrooks. And I just, by accident, I went into the living room and I turned on TV and there was All-Star Wrestling. And it was uh, Tiny Mills and Stan Crusher Kowalski, who were billed as Murder Incorporated. Um, if you saw them back in the day, for that time period, they had long, black, greasy hair. And the grease in their hair was one of their gimmicks, where they'd put it in their hands and then rub their opponent's eyes. And of course, the ref always missed that. And then the, the, the opponent couldn't see. And, but they were beaten up on the double teaming on some guy on TV. And I just kind of got enthralled with it. And uh, it was only like a week or two later, I was with my grandma and we had walked down to the corner drugstore by her house. And there at the newsstand magazine, uh, the magazines, there was the very first issue, the very first issue, I didn't think, think of the significance at the time, but was Wrestling Review. And I begged my grandma for 50 cents to buy this magazine of which god bless her she gave me the two quarters i bought it and i still have it in mint condition today now i don't know wow. how, how many kids can come out with that but then i got every issue after that and i basically was hooked uh from really that encounter because my parents had divorced um Myself and my siblings, we were all put into foster homes, different foster homes. We weren't together. So I didn't really have a childhood where I was felt like I was, you know, a part of a family because you're always the outsider when you're in someone else's home. And uh, wrestling just became something I latched on to when it came on TV. I was just excited about it. I made sure I kept buying the magazines. And my dad Again, bless him. He would take me to some of the cards back then. I'd beg him all the time, but um, he would take me. And I think that answers your question. I, I, um, I found something as I described. I think probably today that uh, was a drug that I got addicted to that was harmless, but it kept me safe, kept me sound, and kept me out of trouble as a kid because uh, I didn't enjoy my childhood. It was it was a it was a tough one. So I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Very much. So, I mean, my addiction is it's 53 years and probably stronger than ever. So I do have a comment uh, first, George, and then be, you know, before my question. Comment is, you know, we always talk about the territories. We love the territories. You know, certain territories, I think it was absolutely awesome as a wrestling fan to have grown up in. Like, for example, the 80s in Memphis. So you can go to the Mid-South Coliseum every Monday night and see Jerry Lawler, Jimmy, uh, Bill Dundee, all those guys. Um, uh, Tojo Yamamoto was the other guy I was thinking of. Then you have you have uh, Florida in the you know late seventies, early eighties. You got Kevin Sullivan, superstar Billy Graham, Bob Roop. You know, again, I think they wrestled. They they put a show on every Monday at the at the Hesterly Auditorium. I, I might be wrong Tuesday, on the date. Tuesday, Tuesday night Tuesday. was the, okay. the Homer uh, Hesterly Auditorium. Uh, for the armory. For okay. Yeah. Armory. Yep. For, that's it. And I and, was there many times for cards. A great place. Absolutely great. And then, so those are the two that I, I always think of. But 
I have to think that growing up in the Twin Cities and, you know, from maybe the late 50s to the mid 70s had to be a completely awesome experience for somebody who was truly a wrestling fan. So that's my comment. And then uh, my question is, um, and we talked about Scott Teal before the show, a mm-hmm. great friend of our show. He's been on a couple of times. He's got an open invite to come anytime he wants. Well, you know, we never we never get tired of talking to Scott. He's just a great wrestling Absolutely. person. Um, so he, it sounds like um, you're you're kind of have a parallel as far as you know your fandom morphed into involvement with the business. So you started collecting programs and trading, you know, programs and magazines. Eventually, started writing some articles uh, for the magazine. So you've had a very long and very um, diversified journey in professional wrestling. Tell everybody about your whole wrestling experience. Well, first of all, you have to understand that in the kayfabe era. Uh, it was highly unusual that a fan could get in on the inside. Um, the, the wrestlers were always very protective of the business. They would go out of their way to convince you that everything that they did in the ring was real. And they hated that word fake as, as it comes around. But uh, again, I was a little bit different of a fan. When I was in school, by the time I was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, I found that it was very hard to say to someone that you're a wrestling fan if they automatically thought it was fake. And, you know, they would say, Shire, you watch that stuff, you know, it's not real. And then, you know, I learned that, well, okay, I'm not going to talk to you about it because you don't get it. You don't understand. And that's fine. You know, we're all different. Um, But I learned that when I'd go to the matches and I would buy my program, and they were a dime in those days, and then later on a quarter and up to 50 cents, you know, inflation kept hitting. (laughs) But, um, well, I mean, when you're you're 14 years old and they're a quarter a piece or 50 cents a piece, you know, I only had a paper route in those days. That That was big money. But I'd go to the matches and I'd buy that program. I came up with the idea you know what, it would be fun when I'd look at the wrestling magazines because we did not know what happened in St. Louis or in Dallas or Tampa or San Francisco. We only got our local television. We knew what we were being told, that our promoter had outbid every promoter in the country to get this title match. And, you know, these guys hate each other and they're going to finish each other off tonight in the match. We didn't realize at the time that, you know, well, last night in St. Louis, they might have been tag team partners and now they're trying to kill each other in Minneapolis. You know, we had no clue. But I got the idea that if I could, when I saw those wrestling magazines, um, if I could get programs from some of those other territories, you know, like you mentioned, Benny, uh, Tojo Yamamoto. I remember in the magazine, he was called Tojo Yamamoto Chump. And this was back in the the late 60s. And I thought, man, that would be cool if I could, if I could, you know, see him wrestle. And then you'd never hear from him again, you know, because the magazines would cover uh, other wrestlers. But I started buying more than one program. So before you know it, I was buying five and 10 and 15. I was up to like 20 or more programs at a time as the years passed. I'd buy the programs, keep one for my collection. The rest of them I was sending out to people. And I ended up 
having the honor, that's how I met Scott Teal. Uh, I, I had contacted him and wanted to exchange programs. And he was in Florida at the time. That's where he lived. And he started sending me Miami and Tampa programs. And I would send him my St. Paul and Minneapolis programs. We both benefited by it. And it was great because now I knew what was going on down there. And it was fun too, because every once in a while you'd see one of the wrestlers that had passed through the AWA and now they're in Florida or vice versa. But I started doing that. And one time I was sitting in my uh, wrestling seat and Marty O'Neill, who was our TV announcer, our TV host, ring announcer, and he was the ring announcer at the live cards. And Marty would come by me and see me there and he'd always go, hey, hey young man, how are you? Because you know that you're there all the time, you get to kind of be recognized. Well, one time he walked up to me. He said, I got to ask you a question. And this was during the intermission or something at the card. He says, I got to ask you a question. Um, I noticed you buy a lot of programs and I'd stick them in an envelope and protect them, you know, through the card so nobody spilt their pop on them or anything like that. And uh, he says, you know, what do you do with all of them? So I told him and he was, he was in awe. He says, oh my gosh, I never thought anybody would, would do that. that. But I told him, I says, that way I know what's going on in Florida and I know what's going on in Texas. And another card later, he came by the same thing. Hey, young man, how you doing? And then he said to me, I'm going to go down to, and it was, I'd never even heard of this town. It was Redwood Falls, Minnesota, small town in Southern Minnesota. Uh, it's one of those towns that if you drive more than 50 through it, you miss it, you know. And uh, but they were hold, hosting a, a wrestling card, which in those days, they called them spot shows, the smaller town wrestling cards that were held in uh, gymnasiums and little National Guard armories. Marty was driving down there to do the ring announcing. And he asked me, of all things, he asked me if I would like to ride along with him. Well, I was only, uh, I was 16 at the time. And I was on the verge of getting my driver's license. But I went with Marty, rode down there with him. And I did that for the summer for a couple of other cards. And we just got to be friends. And that was kind of my first in where I, I was trusted more, so to speak. Sure. And um, after that, you know, the rest is history. I got to know some of the wrestlers. Red Bastine, uh, he left us a few years back, but he was the very first wrestler that ever allowed me to go into the locker room. And that was when I learned how really serious these guys were about kayfabe. I walked in kind of tagging right behind Red. He asked me, he told me, I, told me to go ahead and come in. And uh, there was jabbering in the locker room. The, the, the wrestlers were joking and goofing around. As soon as they saw me, here, this 16-year-old kid, the old proverbial, you could hear a pin drop, silence. And Red said, the boy's okay, no problem. Then they went about their business. And after that, I was, you know, sort of in. But I never really pushed any of that. I, I let the guys, um, I just kind of earned my way with the guys, guys like Nick Bockwinkle, Dr. X. And um, I had the opportunity. Well, I went back to my driver's license a minute. For me, it was important because it was hard for me to get my dad to take me to wrestling cards. 
and I'd get to some of them, but not all of them. So I realized that if I got my driver's license, number one, I can go to all the Minneapolis St. Paul cards. It was simple as that. But I also learned that I could drive to some of these spot shows. You know, driving to Redwood Falls was a two-hour drive. And or driving to Hastings, Minnesota, which was a hop, skip, and a jump from where I lived at the time. And I would start following these spot shows around. Well, lo and behold, before you know it, I'm driving to Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm going down to Kansas City, wow. uh, Kansas, to see wrestling at Memorial Auditorium in the Central States area. And then I'm, you know, I'm getting braver and braver, and I'm driving to Indianapolis whenever I could. And again, hooking up a network of, of people or fans or sometimes the promoters themselves of getting their programs on a regular basis. So I basically knew everything that was going on in most of the territories. One of the things that was fun for me is that I never, ever revealed any of the secrets. Um, I never told anybody that I knew this or that was going to happen if I'd heard it. Um, I figured that was the way for me to continue to earn their respect. And I remember one time um, I smiled because Marty O'Neill had come on TV and he announced at the onset of the program, he said, Fans, Pepper Gomez, as you know, was injured last week. We don't know how long he'll be out of action, but Lars Anderson has been suspended for injuring Pepper. And I could only smile because I had just that week received the program from San Francisco where Pepper Gomez is in the main event. So he's not injured. and He's out there. We don't know that, you know, the average fan. And then, of course, Lars Anderson was suspended. Lo and behold, he also ended up in San Francisco, and along with uh, Paul DeMarco, he had teamed up with out there. They were feuding with Pepper Gomez and uh, Rocky Johnson, uh, the Rock's daddy. So that's how it went in those days where I got to know all these different uh, wrestlers. I had the opportunity in 1970, in April, my high school wanted to do a fundraiser, and... Uh, they knew I liked wrestling, and I went to the wrestling office on their behalf, talked to uh, the matchmaker at the time was Bill Casisto. He was a former uh, amateur grade out of Minnesota. And Bill talked with us about what they could do for this spot show. And the spot show usually had three, car three matches on a card. Well, it, they were going to give me a really good card. Dr. X, the masked man, who was... Uh, Dick Byer, the destroyer, we learn later on in life. But uh, Dr. X against Pepper Gomez in the main event. I was going to end up with Blackjack Lanza against Bob Windham, who was later on Blackjack Mulligan. Mulligan, right. And uh, Windham was in the AWA at the time, uh, again, getting training from Vern Gagne and working with a lot of the wrestlers to put his package together to later become Mulligan. But they were going to go against each other. And then I had a, an opening match. Kenny J, one of our perennial losers, TV losers, the jobbers, but a cult figure to say the least. And he was going to go against a guy named Lee Matson. I'm the ring announcer for this card. I'm, I'm a senior in high school in 1970. And uh, I was excited because I was going to be the ring announcer. About 10 minutes or about 15 minutes before the card, somebody asked me, they said, they want to see you back in the locker room. 
So I go back there and there's Dr. X sitting on the bench in the locker room and right across him from him is Pepper Gomez. They're opponents tonight. Of course, <laughs> nobody would hopefully see them together, but there they were. And Dr. X, he was the spokesperson. He was the one that was sort of running the show that night, you know, at, at the high school. And he said to me, he says, we've got a problem. And he's in his Dr. X voice, his Dick Meyer voice. He says, we got a problem. He says, Gomez has an inner ear infection. He's not going to be able to wrestle. Now, I don't know if that was made up or what, but Gomez was legitimately there. So I think he really did have some issues. Maybe his equilibrium or something was off. So Doc, Dr. X, he says to me, uh, so we're not going to be able to have Gomez on the card. And I said, I'm kind of like, okay. He says, well, and there's another problem. He says, Lanza is stuck in Chicago, not able to be here. Now, that one, I think, was a made-up story because that was great for wrestlers in those days. They missed their air connection or something. But now my two top matches had fallen apart. So Dr. X says to me, he says, so here's what we're going to do. He says, we're going to put, uh, we're going to put uh, Kenny J against, well, I always have to get this straight. It ended up where it was going to be Dr. X in the main event against Kenny J. And Lee Matson was going to take on Bob Windham. And they were going to give that to me. And I, I, I don't know where I ever got the guts to do this. But I thought about it real quickly. And I thought, Kenny J, he's a TV loser. He's going to be against Dr. X, who wins all the time. That doesn't make sense. So I said to Doc, I said, could we do it a different way? Yeah, what do you want to do? I said, well, could we put the tag team main event and have Jay and Wyndham against you, Doc, and Lee Madsen? I said, that way we've got a top-tier guy on the team. Doc says, whatever you want to do, that's fine. That's, we'll do it. So I went back and had to tell the crowd, first of all, that. Uh, the main event had fallen apart. You know, Gomez wasn't going to be there, so on and so forth. And I got booed because I made that announcement. <laughs> but I told him about the main event we were going to have. And I have to tell you, that was the night I met Dr. X, Dick Byer. And that was the time that we became friends forever till the day he died um, a couple of years ago. And uh, he was also, uh, he, was the, he was the one that in did the honors for me when I was given the historian award in 2013 at the Cauliflower Alley Club. And Dick Byer was the one as doctor, he was as the destroyer out there in Vegas, but he uh, put me over on the microphone for all the things that I had done in wrestling. And I, I have never forgotten that. But that night in 1970 was when I met him. So that's when the bug bit me. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. I take a breath and let you guys talk because I can go on and on. So, <laughs> so um, go ahead, Benny. The, you know, originally it was the, the National Wrestling Alliance, what, in 1947. And everybody talks about in 1963 <laughs> that Vince McMahon uh, split off and formed the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, or, you know, Capital Sports. Um how did the AWA actually occurred a few years before that, in 1960, I believe? How did the yes. AWA come into being? 
Well, you're right about the NWA that was formed in 1948 when a group of promoters got together down in Iowa. Wally Carbo was one of them. Um, Sam Muchnick and Pinky George and a few of the others, they got together and they wanted to come up with that one champion concept. Um, what I often tell people is that the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, was not really a, a wrestling territory at all. It was basically a champion. That's what the NWA was. They recognized all these promoters would get together and pay these dues, go to these annual meetings and vote on who they wanted to be champion, if they wanted to keep the present champion or maybe change champions. They'd vote on it, the promoters. But the promoters would would uh, pay to get the champion to come into their respective territories, and then they would, you know, be under the NWA banner, so to speak. So for the 50s, Luthez was the first NWA National Wrestling Alliance champion, and he would go in, oftentimes come into Minneapolis, which was an NWA city in the 50s. And Vern Gagne was the main star in Minnesota. You know, as a graduate of the University of Minnesota, played for the Gopher football team. He was on the Gopher wrestling team. He represented the, he was an alternate in the 1948 Olympics. And just a standout wrestler, he realized early on that he could make more money playing uh, or wrestling instead of playing football. They didn't have the lucrative football contracts they do today. Back in those days, if a guy made 6000 a year, and of course you're talking the early 50s, if they made 6000 a year, that was good. And Vern realized he could do better uh, going into pro wrestling. So he had, a, he had an opening right here in Minneapolis because he was from here. Dennis or Tony Stecker was the uh, promoter at the time, along with Wally Carbo, who was the matchmaker. And Tony Stecker, his brother was Joe Stecker, a great uh, former pro wrestler who was a world champion, recognized as a world champion back in the uh, 30s and 40s. And uh, Tony was our promoter. He'd have Vern on as many cards as he could. But during the 50s, Vern was doing a lot of traveling, and he ended up with the junior heavyweight title. The NWA only recognized two championships, one the world heavyweight title to the junior heavyweight title. And they never recognized officially any NWA tag team champions. Although if you went around to the different territories around the country, there were NWA champions all over. So when you're doing a history of the NWA title, that is extremely difficult. And I've got them all, but it's extremely difficult because there's different sets of of NWA champions. It's just whatever territory they were in. So the story goes like this. Vern really earned his oats in the 50s. And when Vern and television in the early 50s were, uh, the television was in its infancy, I guess you could say, wrestling became the big draw for television. And it was guys like Vern Gagne, Gorgeous George, who was, you know, the total arrogant, uh, bleach blonde, strutting wrestler, Killer Kowalski, Yukon Eric, Buddy Rogers, Luthez. These were the guys that became national names from television in those days. So they did a lot of traveling. Well, as the 50s went on, Vern basically wanted to be NWA champion. 
That was his goal. He wanted to have that recognition. And Lou and Vern were very good friends, but they were highly competitive. And they had a, a personal rivalry where Vern wasn't going to put Lou over and Lou wasn't going to put Vern over in any type of a title situation. Now, they wrestled against each other. Um, I think my records show about eight or nine times, which isn't a lot over the 50s. But most of the time, because Lou was champion at that time, during those times, Lou got the nod and, and you know, put Vern lost. But by the time we got to the end of the 50s, Tony Stecker had passed away in 1954, and his son, Dennis, took over the Minneapolis. The official name was the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club. They actually did uh, do boxing from time to time, too. But wrestling was their main their main plate. So Dennis Stecker was the promoter along with Wally Carvel until 1959. In 1959 and the years, a couple years previous to this, the NWA became uh, came under scrutiny with the United States Justice Department for, of all things, being a monopoly, controlling the territories, controlling the champion. So there was a lot of talk about what was going to happen. So a kind of a, a behind-the-scenes deal was worked out where Dennis Stecker wanted to get out of the business at that point in time, and Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo bought the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club from the Stecker family. And that was in 1959 when the NWA was still our umbrella. We recognized the NWA champion in Minneapolis. And now when I say Minneapolis, I'm based, I'm going to talk about all of the different cities that they promoted in. So that was the NWA at the time for this territory. Later on, it would be that same thing when it became the AWA. Vern, in 1959 in September, which is ironically about the same time I got hooked on wrestling, he uh, had Tiny Mills and Stan Kowalski as his international tag team champions, and they were recognized as NWA champions in Minneapolis. Vern wanted to become champion. The NWA agreed to give up Minneapolis when Stecker sold out. So this solved a little bit of their problem because now they could say, well, they weren't a monopoly entirely and they gave up a couple of other cities as well. Vern bought Minneapolis and from September of 59 to August of 1960, we were under the NWA, NWA umbrella and Vern was going to be champion. So in May of 60, a fictitious storyline was created was announced on All-Star Wrestling. It was printed in the arena programs that Vern Gagne, Wally Carbo, and other promoters. Now, nobody knew in those days that Vern owned the company. That was always a secret. Wally was the front man. They put out a challenge that they Vern wanted to challenge the NWA champion for the championship, which at the time was Pat O'Connor. And they gave him a 90-day ultimatum that if O'Connor and the NWA did not defend to Vern within 90 days, that Minneapolis would no longer recognize Pat O'Connor as the NWA champion. Well, it was never going to happen because this was a work behind the scenes. And O'Connor 
the stories came out that he was ducking Vern. He hasn't answered the challenge, so on and so forth. We get to August, was never answered the challenge, and Vern is announced as the first AWA world champion. And there is the inception of the AWA on August 16th of 1960. So I just stop with that and just say that if fans out there go to some websites, there are some out there that say that Pat O'Connor was the first AWA champion. That is incorrect. He was the NWA champion and Vern became the first AWA champion when that fictitious challenge did not get answered. But uh, those those websites are wrong, and Pat O'Connor was never a WA champion. So that's how it all started. And from there, Vern made Mills and Kowalski his tag team champions, the very first ones. And he was off and running. He recruited a bunch of his wrestling friends to take over the AWA territory in, in 1960. He brought in hard-boiled Haggerty, Lenny Montana, Wilbur Snyder, Joe Scarpello, uh, Leo Namalini, one of his old Gopher, Minnesota Gopher buddies, all great wrestlers, big names. And Vern brought them in to kind of get the territory moving. And so they were some of the first blood that uh, got it going. And Vern, of course, was the champion. Guys like Gene Kaniski and Bill Miller and so on just became a, a place where Vern brought in a lot of talent and a lot of guys wanted to work here. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, you you were talking about the formation in the sixties, um, something, <clears throat> the reputation and, and it starts in that era and goes on it, When people talk about the AWA, one of the stories that comes up, I should say maybe stories. One of the, the points that comes up a lot is, is that Vern Gagne had a lock on the championship. Like he was, he was the guy that was it. Um, but in your book, you talk about, both uh, uh, Mr. M, who's Bill Miller, and Mad Dog Vachon, who uh, both legends in their own right that had extended title reigns. I was wondering if you could go into a little detail about the early main event picture that, yes, while Ganya was the main attraction, he wasn't the only big star they had. Well, you know, I, I hear that story from people all the time. They say, well, you know, Vern, Vern was the champion because he owned the company, and Vern put Vern over. And yeah, there's some truth to that. But I think what you have to do is you have to stop for a minute and you have to look at it like this. Vern was the owner of the company. And in the 60s, Vern was only, you know, he, was, he wasn't 40 years old until 1966. So Vern was still a young wrestler. And you have to, if you saw Vern Gagne in the 50s and the 60s, this guy was a whirlwind in the ring, flying drop kicks off the top rope, you know, backflips, uh, flying head scissors. And he, he, he really emphasized a lot of that amateur wrestling and actual wrestling, always playing, as I referred to him in my book, as the mom's apple pie good guy. Now, Vern was the champion first and foremost because he knew that he could trust Vern, you know, I would equate it like this. All my years during my working career, I worked in a bank. Well, the president and the CEO of the bank was the owner of the bank. Well, that's natural, right? They're, they're running the business their way. And if you looked at the wrestling territories in the 50s and 60s, usually it was the promoters or the bookers in a particular territory 
that held the championships on a long period of time. And in the case of Vern, Bill Miller was one of his out of the ring best friends. They had met a lot uh, during the 50s. In They actually wrestled in Minneapolis as Bill Miller against Vern Gagne in the 50s. And they were still- to, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interject for just a second. So are you comparing, obviously his, his friendship with Bill Miller is similar to uh, where a lot of promoters would have sons or family members be champions as well. It was that kind of bond. Um, I don't know if it was that kind of a bond or not, but in those early days, it was more somebody you could trust. Bill Miller held the title for eight months. He won it in January of, uh, 62 and he held it until August of 62. He was Mr. M under a mask. The mask gimmick was so phenomenal in those in that era because they put a mask on somebody, tell fans they don't know where he comes from, or where he them. lives, <coughs> excuse me, how much he weighs, who is he under the mask, everybody's trying to find out. So, but Bill Miller got the title and a lot of that was because it built a good rematch type situation. So when Mr. M took the title from Vern in January of 62, well, here's this mass man. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he comes from. Vern is upset. You know, the storylines, he wants to get the title back. And by the time we get to August, it was time for Bill Miller to move on. He was going to leave the territory. And in that return title match, uh, Vern actually unmasked him as Bill Miller. And then he appeared here for a while after that as Bill Miller himself. But um, it, it was a trust thing. Vern knew that he could trust Miller to do what he wanted him to do. And that same thing happened with uh, Mad Dog Vashon. A lot of people would never have known back then, but outside the ring, Vern and Maurice Vashon had known each other since the 48 Olympics. Mad Dog, he was Maurice Vashon in those days. He was, uh, he represented Canada as an amateur in the Olympics. Vern was for the United States. So they were friends. They they know each other. And Mad Dog was a he was a heck of an amateur wrestler. But when he got into wrestling, he didn't have the luxury like Vern did, where he had a promotion that basically he could buy into or become part of. And for about the uh, first eight or nine years of his career, though he main evented in some territories as Maurice Vachon, he was never able to really get that that big push until he became the snarling biting growling from algeria, algeria right. yeah so Vern brought him in to the awa and uh they actually there's a tv match that happened in 19 early 1964 where mad dog came in on tv and lost a match on television Vern was just trying him out to see how he got over and eventually they had this rivalry where Mad Dog was everything that Vern Gagne wasn't in the ring. Vern was scientific, to use that term. Vern used wrestling holds. Vern never, you know, criticized, shouted, and raved, and ranted. Mad Dog did all of those things. He snarled, he barked, he bit, he crawled, he scratched, stomped, and uh, was a perfect rivalry. So Vern knew he could trust Mad Dog, and uh, he put the title on him for three years. And that gave Vern a chance to be the challenger. Also made many, many rematches. 
gave some of the baby faces a chance to have title matches and uh, when they went against Mad Dog. But uh, it was that trust factor. Mad Dog was loyal to Vern. Vern knew that when he told Mad Dog it was time to lose, time to give it up, Mad Dog would do it. In the meantime, he would defend it to the hilt until Vern asked him to give it up. And uh, that's the way it was. So then Vern became champion again. Pretty much had a strong, uh, stranglehold on the title until November of 75 when uh, Nick Bockwinkle got it. And there is another example. Vern wanted to slow down, kind of, kind of take care of the business matters behind the scenes. By 1975, he was already uh, uh, 49 years old. He was slowing down. He wasn't the same Vern that we remembered. You know, he wasn't as fast. He was still Vern Gagne, and he still drew. When his name was on the marquee, attendance was always up when Vern Gagne was on the card. So he's got that reputation. But he wanted to give the title up, and Nick was his heir apparent. And Nick was 100% uh, behind Vern. Nick would have done anything that Vern asked him to do. Vern and Nick held it for about uh, almost five years before Vern took it back for the last time. And then it was getting close to the end of his career. So I, I hope that answers your question. It's all about a trust factor. And then Vern also, uh, he wanted to put the belt on somebody that he knew could protect the belt. In the case of Mad Dog, in the case of Nick, if there was a wrestler out there that wanted to get cute, See what they see what they could do. Maybe you know, pull a swerve in the ring. And guys did this. And I'm going to test it. Well, Mad Dog could uh, defend himself and keep the keep the title from passing or some finish happening that wasn't in the plans. Same with Nick. Nick had enough of the knowledge and the ability to uh, keep the title. So it was all a trust factor. And it's the same as any company. If you went down to Florida, usually the the owner of the company was the champ, or the booker was the champ. Down in Texas, Fritz von Erich, and he took over. He became the champion, the American champion down there for long periods of time because he owned the company. Right. So that's pretty much the answer. So, George, uh, and I, I can't say enough <laughs> good things about this book. I, 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 I've been reading this book for quite a while, and it's one of these books that you can always go back and reread re re read certain sections of it. It's it's that good. The the, the 1970 section of the book. It's called Duos Dominate. It's got a show. It shows a picture of the Valiant Brothers, who, in my opinion, belong on around Mount Rushmore of tag teams. They're the, I think they're that good. And like we mentioned earlier, Jimmy's Jimmy's School, BWC Boogie's Wrestling Camp is our sponsor. Back in the day, tag teams were an integral part of of wrestling. Uh, even you know me growing up in New York. A lot of times, a tag team would a tag team match would be the main event at Madison Square Garden, and in, in Minnesota, you had some of the greatest teams ever. You had Race and Henning, you had Stevens and Bachwinkle, you had the the Bashan brothers. I mean, you name it. Um, and and most of these main event tag team matches were two out of three falls. It was Mid Atlantic was another territory where you really you know they put a a strong emphasis on tag team wrestling. Now it's, I mean, not that we really watch it a whole lot, but WWE, they kind of just pay lip service to tag teams. What, what do you think happened that, you know, the tag teams are really kind of, for all intents and purposes in wrestling, they've fallen by the wayside. What do you think, why do you think that happened? 
Well, first of all, back up to when you said tag teams were in their heyday in some of these territories, including Minneapolis. And again, when we say Minneapolis, we're talking the entire AWA, all the cities that they went to, you know, Denver, Winnipeg, Chicago, Milwaukee, San Francisco, wherever it is, Iowa. That, that's Minneapolis when we talk about that. So fans are aware of that. Um, whenever the wrestlers came to the AWA, they always said they went to work for Minneapolis. They went up to Minneapolis. So that's how that comes about. But they were a tag team territory for a lot of the time. What was good for Vern, um, when he started to slow down in the later 60s and into the 70s and not wrestle as often, even when he was still champion, um, tag teams were able to be the main event and they drew. They always drew well. There, there's something about a tag team in those days where if two guys can give you exciting action, four guys can do it better. And there were so many, you know, we had those two out of three fall matches. In between those falls, uh, during those falls, there were so many different little storylines that could take place in a tag team match. And the tag teams were always good because sometimes the tag team, out of the blue, the two partners would turn on one another. One guy would turn on his partner. Oh, my God, how could this happen? I mean, this is devastating. And then they'd feud, and the fans are, you know, choosing between them. Or they'd have a deal where... Perfect example, we talked about Vern and Mad Dog, the consummate enemies from the 60s through the, through the 70s. Well, lo and behold, in the late 70s, Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson, they beat up Billy Robinson, Vern's partner, put him out of action. Now, that was what they were. the fans were told. Billy was still going to wrestle, but he was injured. And Vern says, I've had enough of this. i got to find a guy that can wrestle like Stevens and Patterson, that can break the rules, that that's the only way I'm going to beat them. So I'm going to find me a partner. So we get this couple-week storyline, you know, who's his partner going to be? Oh, my gosh. He asks Mad Dog Vashon. And Mad Dog, can, can Vern trust Mad Dog? You know, that's what the fans are asking. That's what the promoters are playing as an angle. Will they turn on one of Is Vern going to be in the ring against three enemies instead of two? And so that's how the Vern and Mad Dog tag team came about. But that was the unique thing about tag teams. And tag team wrestling, even as far back as the 50s, I told you that I started kind of following wrestling in the 50s. And I felt so blessed that I got to see teams like the Kelmakoff brothers and the Lasowski brothers. That was the crusher before uh, Reggie Lasowski, before he was the crusher and with his wrestling brother Stan Lasowski. We had a lot of brother tag teams. It seemed like if they looked alike or had blonde hair together, they were brothers. Or if they were both Russians, they were brothers, you know. But today's wrestling, to bring it forward to you, um, I think it comes down, guys, to the fans. The fans do not have the attention span that they had back then. And the fans aren't going to sit through a 45-minute or an hour tag team two out of three fall match or, a, or even a, a singles match. They The matches are quick. Fans want wham, bam, thank you, man, ac action. And uh, so it, it's just not there anymore. And for whatever reason, Vince McMahon doesn't push the tag teams the way they were once pushed. So I think that answers the question for you. But Minneapolis, in its heyday, we, and you mentioned the Valiants, 
when Vern brought the Valiants into the AWA, they had already been uh, WWWF back then. It was still Worldwide Wrestling Federation right. champions. And they had been the World Wrestling Association champions in the Indianapolis Territory. Um, really, the only reason they never got the title in the AWA was Vern had too many other tag teams. If anything, there was a problem in the AWA because we had so many great teams that not all of them could ever become all become champions. The uh, the Valiants, one of them, when they were here, we had Larry Hennig and Joel Duke as a team. We had Mad Dog Vashon and Baron Von Raschke as a team. We had Blackjack Lanza and Bobby Duncombe with Bobby Heenan as their manager as a team. We had Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel, the High Flyers, as a team. We had Larry Hainini and Buddy Wolf as a team. All of these teams, well, they can't all be champions. So it ended up that Lanza and Duncombe were the champs and the rest didn't get it, get the title. When the Vashans were champions, they were champions for uh, almost uh, about two and a half years. The Redheads, Billy Red Lions, Red Bastine. Many people say, well, why didn't the Redheads get the title? And they should have been. They were great. They drew well. But they drew well against the Vashans, and the Vashans were making money, and Vern was making money with the Vashans, so why put it on the Redheads? That's how it kind of went. Sometimes the teams were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sure. And didn't get the title. Larry Hainimi and Buddy Wolf. Larry Hainimi was Lars Anderson. Yes. Uh, when, when Hainimi and Wolf were a team here, I may be a little bit prejudiced on this, but they were one of the best tag teams as far as working together and as far as how they worked a match and could separate that ring and, and irritate the fans. And I thought they would have been great champions, but Vern had too many other teams at the time. So I, I think that answers your question. Absolutely. I want to go back as we wrap up here. You talked a lot about, you know, you mentioned the Russians, and you mentioned you know, different teams and different characters, and you talked about Vern being the local you know, Minnesota hero. Something that, that struck me, and you've mentioned it before uh, in your writings and interviews, is the the crowds that did not disperse despite the economic, and then we're going to go back before the 60s, the economic downturn of the Depression the Minnesota still did great numbers with boxing and wrestling and especially wrestling. Um, and, and I'm wondering because one of the things you hear a lot of stories about with, you know, Max Bayer bringing in the, the, the Jewish crowds in, in New York and some of the fights out there, um, James J. Braddock being the, the Irish crowds to the boxing, um, Joe Lewis, obviously, at the African-American community. Was it was it because Minnesota was able to produce so many, for lack of a better term, heroes that people could relate to, that, that the crowds still were, were invested? Or was it something just about the community? What was it that, that even during a time when, when money was so hard to come by, people were still spending it on, on watching wrestling and, and that crowd stayed around when, when for the later decades as, as wrestling grew. Well, you're right. Wrestling always drew even during the depression era. And part of it is, is that they did have these local heroes, these, these 
Sometimes the ethnic background was important. You know, one of the things that I always, when we were when we were kids, back in the in the sixties, the magazines they were all published out on the out in the East Coast in New York, Wrestling Review, Wrestling World, The Wrestler. You know, just go down the line, Ring Wrestling. They're all in on the East Coast, and so if you look at the the vast majority of these magazines, it was usually a huge coverage of East Coast wrestlers, primarily Bruno San Martino. Now, Bruno was a great, great draw. I mean, you can go back and look at Madison Square Garden month after month after month after month for, for eight years as champion. He sold out. But it was also his opponents. I mean, let's these killer opponents that he was in against. But Bruno, in that part of the country, uh, part of the United States, he was the Italian. There were a lot of Italians in New York and the East Coast. And the same was true, you know, when Pedro Morales uh, became champion, a lot of the Puerto Rican population. And a lot of that has to do with if Bruno would, were to have come to the AWA, and I'm going to say this with Morales, I think that will explain it for you. If Bruno were to have come to the AWA, I'm not sure he would have been the huge draw that he was on the East Coast. But in reverse, the crusher, who was huge in the Midwest, he probably would not have been over for as long as he was in the AWA had he been out East, because it was that ethnic population, that type of thing. The crusher was always the working man's wrestler when he turned into a babyface in 1965. Pedro Morales, as big as he was on the East Coast, and he held the uh, WWF title for a couple, three years there, he was huge out there too. He didn't draw as well as Bruno, but he still drew crowds. And again, it was the population, the people. But when he came to the AWA in 1978, Vern tried really hard. Pedro was put into a program. He was announced as being a former WWF champion. He was, uh, they, didn't, they didn't say that that didn't happen. They acknowledged it, which was kind of rare because they don't normally acknowledge a rival group. But back then it was safe because the groups weren't going to jump in your territory. You know, everybody had their boundaries. Right. But Pedro Morales was a former WWF champion. And they put him into a program with uh, the Super Destroyer, who was Don Jardine, the spoiler under a mask in the AWA. They had him feuding with Lord Alfred Hayes. They had him uh, feuding with even Nick Bockwinkle. But the fans, I recognized it. The fans just weren't coming because of Pedro Morales. And it just was, we didn't have that population that was out east. That's the only way I can explain it. There were some wrestlers that just couldn't cross over. And in those territory days, it was easy for a guy to, I mentioned earlier about Gomez being injured in Minneapolis and then showing up in San Francisco. It was easy in those days because we didn't know that they were somewhere else. They could go somewhere else and be a heel when they were a baby face here or vice versa. And we didn't have any way of knowing. But that's the way the wrestlers could do it in those days. The AWA was a big territory, and I can tell you firsthand from guys like Bachwinkle, Red Bastine, Dick Beyer, hundreds of others, 
they always wanted to come and work in Minneapolis. And generally speaking, we had we had five mainstays, and a mainstay being that they were here kind of off and on all the time. Fern Gagne, of course, one of them. The Crusher, Mad Dog Vashon, Bobby Heenan, Nick Bockwinkle, Larry Hennig. They were kind of the guys that were always here. They might go away or disappear for a relative period, short period of time, but they were always here. And all of the other wrestlers that came in would be worked into programs with all of them. And then those wrestlers, in those days, the, the territory days, a wrestler would make a deal with a promotion, promoter, that I'm going to come into your, your territory for six months or a year, two years. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to have you do. And when it comes time to leave, you'll move on. You'll be injured or you'll just leave the territory. You'll, you'll lose a loser, leave town match, whatever they worked up to, you know, show the guy missing. And uh, that's what happened with Dr. X. Perfect example. Vern wanted Dick Byer to come into the AWA. He had wrestled him in Chicago when the Destroyer was wrestling for the WWA. Vern and Dick the Bruiser owned Chicago, the one territory they owned together. So the, the Chicago territory or city had a combination of WWA and AWA wrestlers on their cards all the time. Those fans were lucky. Well, the Destroyer was one of them. He never came into Minneapolis as the Destroyer or any of the other AWA cities. Vern wrestled him in Chicago. He wanted Dick Byer to come in. And Dick reminded him right away, Dick Byer reminded him right away that if I come in, I won't unmask because the Destroyer is my, my livelihood, my gimmick. And the Destroyer could draw so well that he had that power. And Vern said, well, I don't want the Destroyer. We'll use you as Dr. X. A whole different persona and look. And in the end, when it's time to leave, or when you decide you want to go, Dick, you'll take off your mask. They agreed to that. And that's the way it went. So for three years, everybody tried to unmask Dr. X. I mean, anybody. You name, you name the guys. Bill Watts, Carpentier, Red Bastine, you know, Larry Henning. And on and on and on, Vern Gagne himself. And so in the end, when it was time to leave, Dick went to Vern in June of 1970. And he said, I want to take a year off. I'm going to travel with my family. I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to wrestle as the destroyer around the country, around the world. <coughs> Excuse me. So Dick agreed to do the unmasking as he did in different cities. And he moved on. He was able to come back later on, two year, a year and a half later, after his world tour, as Dr. X for about another year, year and a half. And he was a good guy now. He was masked still. And no mention was mentioned that he had been unmasked or that even the name that he was you know, unmasked as. Um, he was unmasked in, every, in the cities in the AWA as Bruce Marshall, made up name. Only in St. Paul was he Dick Byer. And I'm not sure why that was. But Dick agreed to use his real name. But in those days, we still didn't know that the destroyer was Dick Byer. I mean, yeah, there was rumblings out there, but most people didn't know, most average fans. So they got away with this stuff. And that's the way it worked in the territory days. The guys would come in, work for a year, two years, and move on. Go to a different territory, maybe a same character, maybe a different character, and get a push, 
or lack thereof in the city or the territory they were in. The main thing is they were always looking for whatever money they could get. And despite what happened in the AWA in the later, later years, and I'm talking the very late 80s, they had had a sad ending to a great company. And we could talk a whole, we could talk a whole couple hours on that and get the, you know, real scoop of it. But it, during its heyday, any wrestler who worked in the AWA, they wanted to work here because it was a lighter travel schedule, a, a work schedule, and they loved the pay. And Vern was always a good pay guy. And they would all tell you that. So uh, what happened in the end, that's a whole different story. And it, like I say, it's another program altogether. So, uh, George, I particularly, there's a quote at the end of the history section of your book, and I'm just going to read it. Fans who loved and lived professional wrestling in the days before loud music and meaningless fireworks turned it into mere, before uh, loud music and meaningless fireworks turned it into mere entertainment, are left with nothing but memories of four lights and a ring back in the days when wrestling was real. And if I was a preacher, I'd say, can I get an amen? Because... I think we are so blessed that we grew up in an era where, like, we were 100% emotionally invested. To us, even when we knew, like, we got a little bit older and we knew it wasn't completely real as far as, you know, the outcomes and things like that. I mean, when I was, I guess I was 25 when uh, when Larry Zbysko turned on Bruno. And, you know, to me, like, one of the biggest, you know, the most impactful heel turns in the history of wrestling. Now, by then, I kind of knew what was going on, but... I still <laughs> stood up on the couch and said, holy crap, because it was it was still, you know, it was still very real to me. Um, <clears throat> so do you feel that like that's something that will never happen again? As far I as don't how, think how it, people feel, you know, will feel about wrestling. I don't think it will ever happen the way you've described it and the way we remember it. it you mentioned the four lights under ring. There's a significance to that. Um, that was what I wanted my, the title of my book to originally be, <clears throat> excuse me, four lights and a ring back in the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, when you went to the local arena, there were three or four lights above the ring. The auditorium was dark during the wrestling card. Only those lights shining down on the stage, the ring, the wrestler's stage. When the wrestler would, the bad guy would come from the locker room, you didn't have any cameras, any lights, spotlights or anything on him, but you could hear the crowd rumbling as that wrestler got closer and booing. And the wrestler would come through the dark audience, get to the ring, receive his boos as he's climbing into the ring. The same would happen from the other direction of the arena, when the baby face would come out, you know, in this case, let's just use the crusher. You'd hear the fans way back by the locker room cheering, and then the cheers get louder as they get to the ring. They get into the ring, that ring is still dark, or the auditorium is still dark, just those ring lights. And yes, there was showmanship in the business. You know, we had the strutting blondes, we had the arrogant, uh, loudmouths and we had you know the evil bad guys the 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 mad dogs and pampero furpos and the mass men and that sort of thing but what changed was wrestling became totally entertainment 
where the spark to the crowd now is when the wrestler comes out on the big long walkway with the fireworks going off, the pyrotechnics, with the loud music. Every wrestler has to have entrance music today. Doesn't care what his, what his role is in the promotion. He's got to have entrance music. The fans are cheering for the music. The wrestler takes five, ten minutes to get to the ring. He's clapping the fans or booing, you know, dissing the fans, whatever role he's playing, strutting and, and the whole thing. Um, when the match gets underway, you you look now, I don't watch wrestling anymore, but when you do watch it, you see that the auditoriums are completely lit up. The, the fans are all holding up billboard-type signs for their favorite wrestlers or their favorite catchphrase. And that reminds me of something that I find very ironic. In 1968, in July of 68, for the very first time, Butcher Vashon was going to come and join his brother, Mad Dog. And they were real brothers. There were a lot of wrestling brothers, but they were real brothers. He was coming in the first time, and they were going to go against the Crusher and the Bruiser. I begged my dad, can we go to the matches? I made, I went to the drugstore. And I got one of these white card, cardboard, cardstock type posters, and I took magic markers, and I wrote on there, Crusher and Bruiser versus Mad Dog and Butcher. <clears throat> and I was going to hold this up. I grant you, I'm only 16 years old. I'm going to hold this up when I go to the arena. When I got to the auditorium, the ushers stopped me and asked me, what, do I, what am I bringing in? And I had it all rolled up. It was huge. And I opened it up and, it, you know, I opened it up and it's going to block everybody behind me. He's going to block their view. And the usher said, I, you can't take this in. You cannot bring stuff like this in the arena. And he took it from me. I never got my poster. Well, the irony of it is, is that today, when you look at the audience, every fan in that audience has a sign, and each one is bigger than the one next to him, with all the catchphrases and all the, the wrestlers' names. The promotions today promote that type of thing. And the characters and the wrestlers and the action in the ring takes a lot less time. You'll never see a one-hour draw. Fans' attention span would never go for it. You'll never see rest holds like you used to see in the old days when a guy could put a guy like Johnny Valentine could put you in an arm lock for 20 minutes and do all kinds of eye gouging behind the referee's back and that sort of thing. The fans would get into it. But today, they would be yelling, boring, boring, and they wouldn't go for it. So today's matches, the match itself is shorter than the entrance into the ring. It's all about the character and the strut and that sort of thing. So will it ever return? Probably not. But I always say this, I'm not happy the way it, it is today, but they're making money. Vince is drawing fans, so I guess it works. Can't go wrong with that. You know, we say this a lot, Benny, tell me I'm wrong, where, you know, we, we feel like we could talk for a few more hours and barely scratch the surface of... I mean, we we've talked for over an hour and we ended basically, you know, other than the occasional reference, we haven't really left the 1960s yet. And it's 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 just an incredible story. We're definitely going to have to bring you back, George. Uh, part two. We've got so much more we can cover. I'm sure you have a lot more stories to tell. 
And so I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, the Benny was, uh, before we got to recording, he showed that he's got a copy. I have a copy on my bookshelf. The book is called Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, From Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. Uh, it's available. I bought mine on Amazon, uh, Google Press. It's available anywhere books are sold. Um, as, as we say goodnight, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I just want to say thank you for the plug on the book. You know, it's it's kind of funny. It's 10 years already, and the book is still at Barnes & Noble when I go there. So that's always fun to see the book on the shelves. And they are new books because when I go in, I check. And if they're not autographed, I always have them autographed. Or I autograph them for them. They say that the autograph sticker sells more books. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do that. But that four lights and a ring thing, that's what I wanted the book to be called for the reasons that I told you, because the fans of that era would understand what I explained to you about that stage. The History Center, the Minnesota Historical Society Press in St. Paul, because they're a Minnesota-based publisher and the History Center is in St. Paul, they wanted Minnesota in the title. And that's the reason that it became Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling. Um, I was against it at the time. But I've come to appreciate the fact that they did that because it has continued to sell. And uh, I hope I can come back. I, uh, we, we could talk for hours. And believe me, you can throw anything at me and I'll be happy to explain it or expound on it and or correct it, whatever it is. And uh, so I hope I can, guys. You guys do a good job. I had Scott Teal and I were talking afterwards and I told him I was impressed with you guys. It's a Thank good you. show. I, I come on some of these podcasts where I'm not sure the guys are even really fans, but I like to talk the old stuff. I don't want to talk about the new stuff. So you guys do great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That uh, coming from both you and Scott, that's high praise. We appreciate it. And we'll definitely um, get back with you. I know Benny, you and Benny were talking before we got to record. We'll definitely get back with you, George, and have you on uh, again. I mean, there's so much more. And as, uh, I've mentioned it before. I lived, I grew up at the time uh, right outside of Annapolis in Maryland. So I had both the Baltimore and the DC channels. So the NWA yeah. was on channel 13 and the WWF was channel 10. And ESPN played the, which we had cable, which was like a big deal back then, you know? Um, oh, yeah. Yes. ESPN played the AWA. So I got all three growing up and it was awesome. And I've been hooked ever since and hearing your stories and reading the book. And like I said, there's so much more we can go over. I don't think in, in the, obviously the, the older fans get it, but, but there's the AWA just, you know, is there's, there's times I feel like it doesn't get enough credit. And I just, it's something I love to talk about. So we will definitely have to have you back on. The key thing is, is that all the territories that no longer exist, I feel blessed that I was, for whatever reason, I had that uh, cognizance to save the programs from all the territories. I can go back and tell you everything that happened in Houston, for example, to 1953, because I have every single program. Every Friday night, they ran cards religiously, unless it was on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, they did not run a card. But otherwise, you know, 52 weeks a year, and I have all the programs. Dallas and, you know, all the cities I told you. Um, that allows me to have all this history. And so somebody can come in and ask me a question. I can talk AWA, NWA, Mid-Atlantic, Florida, you name it. It's, it's fun. And I have all that stuff. 
it's fun That's to go impressive. in that uh, fortress of solitude, as I call it. I, I was just about to say, you're, 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 you have a man cave that any fan could be jealous of. That's for sure. Well, Benny, uh, you saw I posted a picture the other day on my wrestling Facebook page of uh, I was in my wrestling room and my wife snapped the picture, so I put it on there. But it's a room ceiling to floor, wall to wall, eight by ten framed photos, posters, you name it. It's a fun place to visit. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, George, we again, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, have a good night, and we'll definitely get in touch with you after and bring you. We'll definitely have to have you back. Thank you, guys. Love doing it. Absolutely. And once again, for for those out there, the book is Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. I cannot recommend it enough. George, thank you again for all your time. God bless, guys. Good night, George. That's incredible, Benny. I know we, we say this a lot when we finish interviews, just the wealth of knowledge that some people have, and it comes from the experience. And uh, I mean... You, you and I, you had we had the list of questions that we wanted to touch on, and we got to what, ten percent of them, uh, maybe, and maybe, yeah. you know, and and we could we could have gone. I mean, he even said one question could could he could be two three hours of conversation. I mean, we we're going to end up with part thirty and not touch on half of what the the experiences that George has, and that's just incredible. And that's something that that's really lost. I mean, you look at fans today, people in maybe under the age of 30, you know, they don't have that that same heart. And it's not a criticism of the fans. It's just the business has changed so much. It's not the same and that you don't get that that comparative enjoyment. And and really, I've been I mean, I went to three wrestling shows, including an indie promotion in the last two weeks. And they didn't have programs or flyer or anything like that anymore. And the merchandise table was all T-shirts and bobbleheads and whatever the the newest knickknack is, the John Cena towel or whoever's uh, what a, you know prop that they're carrying. But they didn't have the paperwork. They, there was no programs. There was no pictures. Nothing like that. You know, I and it was one of the questions that we were gonna I, we meant I meant to ask him, but of course we ran out of time. Was that you know, again, I'll go back to Memphis. You go back to Memphis. You had Saturday morning wrestling with Lance Russell. I mean, what, what's better than that? So, uh, with, you know, Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, Jimmy Valiant, you know, Dutch Mantel. And then every Monday night, you could go to the Mid-South Coliseum and watch, you know, watch these guys. I mean, back then, <clears throat> between Saturday morning and Monday night, it, it was a part of your life. If you went to the studio show, I think, you you know, you really connected with these guys. And now I think it's so depersonalized, you know, living in right outside of Tampa. I might get to see it once a year in person. Right. I don't think you have that same emotional involvement as when you're, you know, watching these guys in the studio and then you watch them, you know, every, literally every Monday night. Yeah, I mean, I look at, like I said, I, I was at a couple of shows here in Norfolk. I mean, the scope, the Norfolk scope has just decades and decades of, flare and steamboat and roads the history here and this week we had or in the span of a week excuse me you had uh wwe smackdown was in norfolk and then AEW dynamite came into norfolk in a different arena and that's the first time uh, there's been more than one show in the city 
like in a re- since the Monday Night Wars when WCW and WWF both came through. So, I mean, it's just it's crazy that it's not the same, and and they didn't have the uh, the same aura. I mean, I mentioned you know having the the programs, and you've talked about it too with you know Florida and some of the TVs you could watch. I can't watch three or four different wrestling programs anymore. It, it, now there's two, but yeah, it's just not, it's not, you, I can't go talk to my friends in California and, and, and Texas and Florida and learn about 10 or 12 different wrestling shows. Absolutely. It's so much and, different. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's why we, I mean, we, we talk about it in the tagline, you know, the celebrating wrestling, wrestling storied past. There's so much more to talk about. And after, Last week when we, uh, after last week when we swore off the, 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 the new, the new pay-per-views, I mean, I still, I still watch, uh, weekly. I mean, before we came up to record my, my, this afternoon, my wife and I were catching up watching AEW. So, you know, I, I'm still a fan, but it's not, I, I have more fun watching the old stuff than I do now. So same here. Yeah. Well, uh, any final thoughts, Benny? No, it, it was just. So I, I, I maybe use the word delightful to to speak with a gentleman that you know has made wrestling his entire life and it's just a, a, a fountain of knowledge. I mean, this guy literally George could have talked for we we could have we could have went till tomorrow morning and we wouldn't have covered everything. And just just to hear somebody with that kind of passion and that kind of knowledge. I mean, I you know I mean I I love my wrestling. I you know think I'm a pretty good. Uh, yeah, as far as wrestling trivia, but there was a walking encyclopedia, and I, yeah, I just I just really enjoyed listening to him because yeah, he lived it. Absolutely, they have wrestling, they have wrestling trivia on the uh, at the bar. He's the ringer. He's your phone a friend, right? Right. He's the lifeline for sure. Absolutely. Well, Benny, it, it's always fun. Um, we've got a lot more coming up. Uh, we got our our final show of November, and we'll be at the end of the year before you know it. Uh, a lot of good stuff coming up, and we our page continues to grow, and we continue to have some good discussions. Um, we've had we've had some good ones this week uh, over the last couple weeks on just everything from uh, different news appearances. I know um, uh, we had some some <clears throat> series of both good and bad stories as, as things continue to grow, and we're just having fun with it. So uh, let's round out the year strong, right? Absolutely. All right, well, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and uh, we will see you next time. Stay safe, folks.